Welcome to the Capital City Crew Podcast. Join your hosts Jeff, Owen, Josh, and Herman as they dive deep into the game of Malifaux. Explore sophisticated strategies and creative combinations, but always remember in Malifaux, bad things happen. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another exciting episode of the Capital City Crew Podcast. We are coming here today uh, with a lot of exciting things. We have a special guest who I'll get to in a second. Um, but first off, I just want to remind everyone that we do have a Patreon that helps pay for the show. Uh, it's not free to produce podcasts and, and get all the software for this. So help us out, support your Capital City crew, and, uh, and check us out in the show notes. So. What we're going to talk about today is actually a continuation of our hot takes episode. There was one spicy take that we got in our Facebook post that we thought was spicy enough to warrant its own episode. Um, so this hot take came to us from the UK's Jamie Varney. He had this take. As it currently stands, uh, the factions would be better balanced if generic upgrades were removed from the game. That is quite a take. Uh, and with us here in studio to talk about that take uh, and upgrades in general is Jamie Varney, member of the Flippin' Weirds podcast group out of the UK, frequent guest on the Third Floor Wars, and uh, recently uh, the representative of Explorer Society in the UK Super League. We're also told that Jamie is the self-styled panto villain, which is a, a British term uh, of some sort. So, uh, Jamie, welcome to the show. And uh, what what does that mean? <laughs> yeah, hi. Thanks for having me. Um, so, panto villain is just like your over-the-top villain, like your moustache-twirling sort of Bond villain type uh, person. And that's like the role that I fill in the uh, UK community, or the one they like to tell me I fill anyway. Well, we're really excited to have you here and uh, can't wait to get into the upgrade discussion. But before we do, we're going to jump to the segment that we like to start things off with, which is our 10-minute tech talk. So with us this week with the tech talk is Jeff. Jeff, you want to tell us what is your tech pick and what crazy jank does it do? So I'm with us every week, uh, unfortunately, to some of our listeners, but... Um, <clears throat> My 10-minute tech talk is actually going to be about Calypso uh, of the Explorer Society. Uh, and the reason why I like Calypso, uh, and he actually works really well in general with Explorer Society, and a lot of people don't notice this on first glance, but for 12 Soul Stones, you can get both Dr. Beeb and Calypso. And uh, Dr. Beeb can, in the first activation, he pulls in two cards from your discard pile of five or less. Hopefully one of those is a tome. He can make himself a scrap marker, then eject himself out of Calypso and do whatever other action that you want. Uh, and from that point on, anybody else that is size two or lower can pilot Calypso, which means if you have some runaways that you're not really doing anything with, they can jump inside Calypso and Calypso can get uh, two AP and two bonus actions uh, in a turn using that. You can also place uh, models that are very 
easy to kill or models that you want to get up the board faster, say a shambling nest that's only move three while inside clip, so it becomes move four and can do a bonus action to make itself walk uh, again with, while they don't have a bonus action. Uh, you can also put, uh, as I mentioned, uh, the eyes and ears. Uh, you can stick those inside there to get the eyes and ears up the board, and when Calypso dies, uh, he explodes, and the eyes and ears is in a perfect location to uh, allow the eyes and ears to die and pulse out uh, the defense duels or get uh, a parasite token. So uh, not uh, to forget about uh, what are the, the little four soulstone minions that... Uh, hopeful that don't, prospects. The, yeah, the hopeful prospects uh, can also pilot Calypso. So it's a great way of... Uh, you don't even need to bring Dr. Beeb, but once Calypso dies, you can resummon Calypso with Dr. Beeb uh, very easily. And uh, it's, it's just a nice little tech pick. Uh, what are your guys' thoughts on it? It sounds really janky, but I've had to deal with it, and it is so annoying. It is so annoying because then he's this armor two thing. It's in your face. You're not expecting it because it's out of keyword. And then once you kill it, it comes back. It. Uh, I was ready to strangle Jeff. It blows up and then comes back. It's great. You run it up in the middle of their crew. You can pulse damage. You can pulse more damage. Uh and then bring it back for another round of damage and then more damage. I think by far my favorite part was spectating Jeff and Josh playing when they both did it. And they just had this weird, stupid Calypso slugfest going on in the center for the entire game. It's when true. you both had Calypso fighting yeah. another Calypso. Yeah, it was, it was Anya with Calypso versus uh, Cooper with Calypso. And I will say the Anya Calypso came out to be the superior Calypso. Well, makes sense. So there you go. And Jamie, you can uh, try out that Calypso tech in your next Explorers game. Yeah, it's quite interesting. I'm quite. I'm always a little tempted to take um, Calypso just because there is some cool combos of putting stuff inside. Um, I literally just, as you said that, I was just like, oh, you could put a hopeful prospect in and then it could kill something using Calypso. And then I thought, actually, that doesn't work because it can't replace while it's inside Calypso. Um, but yeah, no, it is cool. I hadn't even thought about some of the things you could do with Calypso. I just, I, I'm super trying to stay in theme at the moment as much as I can with them, just to learn the different mechanics and, and how it all interacts together. But Calypso is a super tempting app keyword to pick, just for some of the cool things you can do. Well, I think it, it's great for a faction to have a model that, I mean, despite Herman calling it super annoying and jank like it opens up interesting combos and it doesn't sound like it's like completely busted so like i feel like that's a good spot to be at where there's something that's neat and somewhat unexpected that can create interesting combinations of unexpected keyword synergies so that's really cool that that made it in yeah, I, I particularly like being able to uh, just me. The shambling nests are very slow. Now, granted, they have uh, from the shadows, but you're, you're typically going to want to leave one back a little bit so that uh, Nexus or yeah, Cadmus Nexus can use it as a uh, as a point to pull other models forward. Well, that one can be uh, put inside Calypso and moved up the board. I mean, just in its move alone, the Shambling Nest can move 12 inches, where normally the Shambling Nest can only move six. So you're doubling the Shambling Nest's movement at that point. People are going to love to hear that. Getting their Shambling Nests up in your face sooner. No, what no, could no, go no. wrong? 
Maybe we shouldn't have shared this tag. That that yes. sounds bad. <laughs> so I will, I will, because I don't want this to be running rampant and people to uh, jump to conclusions like what's been happening on the uh, the boards and things like that with Explorer Society. Doctor Beeb is the only person that can take his own actions from within inside Calypso. So the Shambling Nest cannot give you Parasite tokens from within Calypso. It can only use Calypso's actions, which is a two, three, four damage flip. So uh, just keep that in mind. Uh, although all those uh, neat scheme are terrain markers that are put out by a whole bunch of masters at this point. Uh, it's a good counter uh, pick to that because he does have the Thriller Driller. So. Uh, interesting little piece all right well there you have it folks uh try it out in your next game let us know on on our facebook post about how it worked out for you so we're gonna jump to a quick break and when we get back we're gonna get into the meat of our main topic which is the spicy hot take about upgrades and how upgrades work so stick with us and we'll be right back Do you like our podcast and want to ensure that it continues to run? Maybe you want to hear our outtakes on unedited footage. Or perhaps you're just flush with cash and you like being generous. Either way, we've set up a Patreon just for you. If you like us, please consider donating. Our Patreon can be located in the show notes. If not, we're all pretty sure that it's Herman's fault. Either way, if you like our show, go ahead and leave us a comment. Thanks. And welcome back, everyone. So today, our main topic is talking about upgrades in Malifaux 3rd Edition. So I figured since the take here that spawned this whole episode is Jamie's. Jamie, why don't you, why don't you walk us through what your thought process was around the balance of upgrades in 3rd Edition today? Yeah, no problem. So, I mean, overall, I think it's important to say I think Malifaux is really, really well balanced as a game, especially compared to most other games out there. But as I was looking for something um, to put for like a spicy take, and generally this is what I think, and I think it's important to clarify, when I say it's, uh, the game will be better balanced without the upgrades in it, I mean in their current state as they are at the moment, the game would be better balanced. And, and by that I mean that there is such a wide range of, um, let's say, uh, power level among the upgrades um, that and that differs so wildly between the factions that I think on their own, the upgrades, whilst being quite cool for the game, cause a fair bit of imbalance. That makes sense. So as we, so let's, let's dig into that, right? So we have upgrades, the same pattern in this edition was let's give every, uh, every faction three faction-specific versatile upgrades that cost two stones. Um, also, there's the global upgrade of make your effigy grow into an emissary, um, which I think we, we should touch on, but maybe we'll touch on that at the end. Um, but not all factions are created equal in this new format. Um, I know near the top of the list, I would guess, is is what arcanists as uh, as most problematic yeah for sure um they're definitely one of the top josh yeah arcanists 10 thunders uh bayou probably the top three of the ones with problematic upgrades and 
a couple others loitering in the middle. And at the bottom, we have like outcasts and Neverborn. I don't know what other people think about the bottom of that. I mean, as the outcast player, I, I will definitely say I, I find our upgrades fairly lackluster. Um, I, I don't think I have ever taken Wanted Criminal. I've taken Servant for Dark Powers occasionally in Levy, sometimes on the Vix. And then while getting hard to kill on an upgrade sounds really cool, it it's two stones. Like that's a lot to spend uh, for what it does. Well, I think that the caveat there is it's not just for the outcast upgrade. It's not just two stones to give hard to kill. It's two stones to give hard to kill to a living model. So like some of those models that you would want to have hard to kill on like ashes and dust, it'd be great to, you know, keep them alive a little bit longer or something like that. You, they can't take them. So it, it is a limiting factor. Yeah. I don't know. Herman, what do you think uh, either as my opponent in outcasts or for your, your beloved guild? I was actually going to speak up for Neverborn and say that I think that the Neverborn upgrades are basically right where they should be. I've found use for all three of them. I mean, and it's fairly specific, fairly niche, but there are multiple interactions for all three of them that you do take. And no one seems to be complaining about them because you all already tried to rank them lowest. So maybe that's kind of the launching point for Jamie's uh, Caliente takes. Yeah, like, I mean, ultimately... Like the thing is, I think you're probably right. Neverborn probably have one of the most balanced sets of upgrades, um, but and uh, but ultimately none of them would be a problem if they were all balanced at the same place. And like I'd like at what you were saying about outcasts, like actually their upgrades are, are quite uniquely in a different place in that they potentially all three are really really good, but only on certain models in the faction which means you see them a lot on those models like um soldier for hire on midnight stalker for example is just one one you see a lot um but then the rest of the time for the rest of the models you're not likely to take them um and that's complete a complete variation on say something like arcanist where you're going to see three four upgrades in every crew almost yeah or leadline the leadline coat or sock, uh, lead line sock. Uh, where you're going to see that potentially it, it could add value on any model uh, in the faction. I don't know. Herman, do you agree on leadline? So it's interesting. We were having this debate on leadline kind of over the last couple of weeks. And I would say that it's actually indicative of internal faction balance where I don't think guild has a upgrade problem. I think they have a minion problem. Like everyone's like, oh, you take lead like coat all the time. I'm not taking on minions. People don't even know that it gives shield to two for hunker down on minions. And then you kind of extend that into no prisoners. You can extend that into expert marksman where no prisoners has, you know, I think it's called catch them where you teleport a model eight inches. You're never going to see that. People are taking it for, you know, their enforcers, for their henchmen, for their masters, for those top two. And so I think that's where you start to see this intersection between upgrade balance and internal faction balance. I think that gets back to the the problem being the capabilities that some of these top tier upgrades give is that they're handing out these very, very powerful always on abilities that just dramatically up uh, increase the utility. I, I almost said upgrade the utility of those models or the survivability of those models. You know, 12 cups of coffee from Bayou 
passing out no bonus actions within four to anything is a huge boon that you can put on literally any model in the crew. Magical training, uh, train ninja, uh, giving stealth out to just your master, giving your stealth out to any random model, uh, insane. Just straight up insane. Uh, and you now have to consider these capabilities being put on any model that's out there. And you're going to get a really weird constraint in your design when you have to deal with the fact that they potentially are just making everything more resilient. In Guild, anything can have, any living model can have armor one. And that is a big thing you have to look at whenever you're designing new models, when you're thinking about interactions, whenever you're like testing new stuff, you always have to have the specter in the back of your mind that, hey, this model could just be more resilient. For two stones, you could just make it more resilient. So is there, if we consider all the upgrades across all the factions, is there an upgrade that you all, or, or multiple upgrades that you all think are a great example of what an upgrade should be. Yeah, I've got one. Uh, and oddly enough, uh, I'm going to go with Explorers Society on this one. Um, I actually, and some people argue with me on this one, but flush with cash. Um, there's a, it's very situational. Um, the whole, I can cancel your attack, but I give you a soul. I lose a soul stone and give you a soul stone in return for it. Um, in some cases, it will win you the game. New players will bring it in and consider it complete garbage because you're just handing over a soul stone to somebody else. But that soul stone can be used for uh, prevention of damage. That soul stone can be used for like a wide variety of different things. So you've given your opponent something in exchange for uh, this you know, issue that you've given. And I think that's a, a very balanced mechanic of, you know, uh, I am canceling something that you did, uh, but in return for it, you're getting a slight bonus back in return. Uh, but I'm only going to do this in a situation where it's advantageous to me. So I think that's a pretty good example. Uh, yes. If I was going to say that there was one that I thought was just exceptionally well-designed, uh, it would be the Whisper from Rezzers. Because there are two things you sort of have to look at when you're thinking about an upgrade. Is it worth two stones? And is it too good for being two stones? Does it have two broad sweeping implications? Uh, does it make things too powerful for that cost? And the Whisper, in my opinion, 100% worth two stones. You're getting some excellent utility. You're really playing into the Resurrect's theme. I think Intuition makes Resurrectionist Summoners some of the more reliable in the game because you never have to worry about accidentally Black Jokering. Uh, but the flip side is that while it's it's great and has some awesome effects, I don't think it like fundamentally alters how a model plays and it doesn't fundamentally alter the faction balance. You're not making a model that's too resilient. The Intuition, it's only three cards, so even if you're using it on a beater, the effects on your attacks are going to be there, but not overwhelming. It's not an always-on effect as a result. Uh, so I think it rides line of being definitely worth the cost and having strong utility, but also not like disrupting faction balance and really creating a design constraint that I feel some of these other ones do. Yeah, I have to agree on the whisper. I think actually whilst being probably one of the better upgrades in the game, I think you hit the nail on the head there by saying... It, what it does do is and is better enable a model to do like you take it as sort of a safety precaution a lot of the time right to ensure you can do what you were, were trying to do or what your model designed to do 
Um, but when, to, to go back to your initial question, actually, this is a bit of a weird one because I don't think you see it as much, but I think Eldritch Magic from Neverborn is, is where I think upgrades should sit. It's got a small passive buff, which is useful, but not, not overpowering, doesn't massively like make a model ridiculously good. It's got something that you can take, like Dispel Magic, which is cool. I, I've declared this master, I don't have any condition removal, and my opponent's bringing, I don't know, Keris or something like that. Cool, brilliant. I'm going to bring this, it's going to give me that condition removal. So it's situational, it's got a small buff, it's got a situational thing that you can bring in to fill a gap in a keyword um, that, that you need to fill that isn't actually necessarily in every keyword rather than taking Serena, which I know is obviously the obvious choice at the moment, right? But it's it's that. That is where I want to see an upgrade sit. It's situationally useful um, and worth taking when you need that piece of tech that's on it, rather than a, I'm, I'm going to take this every game because it is pure value. So speaking of the, the counter pick there, I think that's a really interesting aspect of this because there are... There's several upgrades. Um, I think it's it's what there's uh, inferiority complex in Bayou, uh, the Killer Instinct in Razors, um, and uh, the Eldritch Magic, which or sorry, not Eldritch Magic. Um, I don't know, there's one other one that all give Ruthless to a model. Um, that definitely feels like a tech pick of oh. My opponent has declared a terrifying or manipulative heavy keyword. Let me pull in some ruthless. Do you all think that ruthless is like that? That's okay or too strong of a a tech piece to just pull in or just in the right place? Like, where do you all stand on the ruthless add-in, Jeff? So anyone that has ever played Ophelia versus Jack Daw will know exactly what I'm talking about. I would say that upgrade would normally rely or would normally fall into the right place category with the exception of weird designed certain crews where their only defensive mechanic is terrifying or manipulative. And when you can bring in Ophelia against Jack Daw and then give your master uh, ruthless, you are guaranteeing that Ophelia will be able to kill Jackdaw in one activation without any problems whatsoever. Uh, like that is an issue uh, that kind of does need to be addressed. I think that you're going in the right direction of giving utility to your models when you give them an upgrade, but I think a utility piece of ruthless where you get to cancel out, uh, I mean, just Blanket canceling out uh, an entire crew's defense is not a good idea. Giving something like armor piercing where, uh, you know, you have to flip a tome. I think that's a great idea because you can situationally, you'll use the card to get around uh, something, but, you know, just blanket ignoring it. I don't think that's a good way to go. I think there's two, there's two ways of looking at that, right? Cause like it's, um, you're completely right. And when you're the jackdaw player, it's it's a bit of a feel bad, and Ophelia is a pretty special example um, about what what can happen with that. Um, but at the same time, actually, if you look at the amount of models, so you, if you compare those the, the factions, which is Rezzers and Bayou, right, that have ruthless on upgrades. So the the one of their three upgrades is only effective against a very small portion of the game, 
um, compared to something like uh, Stealth or Swagger or Shielded or Counterspell or something like that, which is going to be a lot more broadly effective than Ruthless will be. So although it's, it's a, it can be a feel-bad in those situations when you are the, the player relying on Terrifying, I don't think in terms of a balance point of view it's necessarily too far ahead of the curve or, or in a bad place at all. I think tech picks are one of the like the sweet spots for some upgrades. I, like I don't think all upgrades should be tech picks. It shouldn't just be I take X versus Y and A versus B. That that's a little too matchy matchy and a little too boring. But having some tech picks, especially ones that synergize with the weaknesses of a specific faction, like Bayou and Rezers with their low willpower on their on some of their models on their minions. Uh it's it's a good feature because it it lends some complexity to uh, your crew design. By the more you know about what you're going up against, the more you can plan for it, and your opponent has that exact same piece of knowledge, uh, so that they might not tend to bring terrifying crews against resurrectionists and 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 so forth. So having that in there, I think, is is better than having just upgrades that provide top tier defensive abilities i think in general no upgrade should have top tier defensive abilities but the like second string stuff like ruthless like scamper as opposed to butterfly jump on inhuman reflexes that that level of stuff just seems like the the perfect uh sweet spot for your tech pick upgrades and your your mid mid tier defensive feature upgrades uh i think in general though uh, the where weird went wrong with some of these upgrade upgrades and train ninja is a great example. They tried to compound the upgrade and it makes sense from their design perspective. Like you're a trained ninja, you gain unimpeded stealth and from the shadows. But I think you are now adding too much to a model, like too much specialty onto a model to where like if it was something like, they gain stealth in you know uh, another random thing like uh, would they when they cheat it uh, or if an opponent cheats against it, it takes one damage. Nobody would be like, oh, that's way too brokenly overpowered. But they're gaining three things that are all complementary to each other, and I think that's where you run into the large issues uh, that we face with these upgrades. I don't know. What do you what do you think, Jamie? Yeah, like it's it, they're all good points, and it, what it shows me a little bit is that everyone or a lot of people have a different opinion of where upgrades should sit, right? Um, but the the problem is we've got all those different variations in the game. <laughs> but I I totally I totally yeah, sit totally. With, I totally sit with the tech pick point. Like for me, an upgrade should fill a gap that that you've got in your keyword or your faction that you might need sometimes, but but is is there as sort of a backup rather than a, I'm going to take this every time. That's that's where an upgrade should sit for me. I just want to chime in that as a long-time RPG player who's gone through many iterations on many different games, fluff is never a justification for an overpowered ability. It, it's just not. You Yes, sure, ninjas are, would be unimpeded and stealthy and from the shadows. That doesn't mean they should get those powers because that's just a... Uh, incredibly good set. And they shouldn't also carry a Gatling gun, but carry on. Those are samurai, not ninjas. That's a very different group. Though having your 
samurai that is also a trained ninja. I think that was a plot from the Batman the animated series episode. How quickly you just reverted <laughs> to fluff. Like you just went straight fluff bunny there, buddy. And I, I, I was going to bring this point up. I, I have always been really annoyed by this that uh, the Arcanists get magical training because, or sorry, Soulstone Cash, where uh, you know they get all those awesome abilities with the Soulstone Cash. But I'm like, hold on, the Arcanists have only been there for X amount of years uh, inside Malifaux. The Neverborn have literally lived there for forever since anyone can even remember. You don't think the Neverborn would have more Soulstones than the Arcanists, like? It's where they're from, but like from a fluff standpoint, that never sat well with me. Uh, it just always bug- bugged me. I wouldn't we, call what they're doing their living. We man, we've uncovered new depths of the fluff. We'll, we'll have to do a future episode on on depths which of are Malifaux. Favorite, yeah, depths of Malfo, our favorite fluff uh, and our least favorite fluff uh, aspects in the game. But like, I want to I want to hone in a little more on the. Like okay, what are what are upgrades for? Because we've talked about tech picks in response to your opponent's crew. I think there's also an argument to be made for tech picks for the mission and potentially the table. Like you may want to double down on an upgrade that makes you more mobile or makes you more defensive in particular combinations of strategies or schemes. Um, over others, which is a not opponent specific, but a, a game specific tech. And I, I think that's okay. Um, but are there other uses you all think upgrades should have in a perfect world? Jeff? Um, I actually think the largest thing an upgrade should be taken for is to fill gaps in your crew. Um, as an example, like if your crew primarily relies on manipulative or terrifying as a defensive me- uh, mechanic, you should be allowed to have an upgrade where if somebody comes in with a ruthless model, maybe you took an upgrade to also give a model hard to wound uh, or something else along that line so that you can fill these small holes that you have. Maybe uh, the Explorer Society with their really low movement uh, from some of their crews should be able to get a plus one movement upgrade on some of their things. Like, but that is an interesting design space, but it also needs to be balanced because you don't want to have move eight things walking around. So I haven't looked at all the possibilities, uh, but I think that's what most upgrades should be used for. Yeah. And I mean, I agree with you, Jeff, because I play a lot of journalists. They rely on that manipulative and everything. They should have an upgrade that gives them armor to help protect them. So if we think about... Oh, hold on, hold on. I, couldn't, I couldn't unmute. unmute. I got to respond to that one. Oh, okay. I, I agree that I think uh, certain journalists should be able to be given armor. Maybe not being able to stack more on armor on top of other armor would be a great solution. <laughs> I can't imagine what you're talking about right there. Because I mean, they could stack be. armor on top of armor with like take the hit. That would just be bullshit. No model would be allowed to do that. That's madness. I mean, what what are they doing? Is is she wearing a Kevlar vest and then she decides to put on full plate on top of it so that she's as armored as a machine? I mean, that's why we've n- named it the Leadline Sock because we're not exactly sure where this armor is going on her body. But you yeah, named it the Leadline Sock because I was armoring up a sandworm, and you just didn't like that. Yeah, it's gotta wear the sock. Um, Something with rules. Yeah. So, all right. So we've talked about... Hold on, to clarify so that people don't get... uh, uh, You can't put lead-lined sock on a sandworm. 
So the last question I wanted to ask you all for this segment was the upgrade I mentioned at the beginning. That's a it's a global upgrade that every faction has access to, and that is the the faded upgrade where you can pay to to have your effigy turn into an emissary halfway through the game. So you basically get an emissary for slightly cheaper, but you get it halfway through the game and it comes in with slightly less health. Do you all like that, dislike that? Have you ever taken it? What do you all think? Let's go, Um, Jeff. Personally, I think it, it isn't needed in the game. It created some very interesting design space of that they had to work around. Um, if your emissary is really good and you're going to do this, all you're doing is saving yourself some soul stones in the beginning. Uh, if your emissary is crap, you're never going to take it. So uh, I think it wasn't a needed upgrade, and it was just kind of a way of showing the transition. I think it was more of a fluff thing than anything. Um, so that's just my take on them. I don't think it was really needed in the game. Josh, what do you think? I think it's pretty cool. And I think the the culmination of the, the potential for this is really highlighted in the uh, Explorer Society one. Uh, it, some of the other faction uh, emissaries, they do different things that you don't necessarily want to transition to between throughout the game. But the uh, Explorer Emissary really has a early game and late game one that I think are are both solid pieces that contribute in different fashions. And having that ability to transition halfway through the game is a really nice feature. This is um, it's a really interesting one, actually. So in theory, right, it should be the most balanced upgrade in the game because they all everyone has access to it. But it's very driven by, as you were saying, the the emissary there that goes on like the outcast emissary for example the 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 ability to put upgrades and stuff out you super want at the beginning of the game yeah i think that makes sense i mean as an outcast player i hire the emissary into a lot of crews i have actually used the upgrade uh i think probably only one time um and it was i forget the list but i was trying to squeeze in one other out of keyword model. So the savings of, of stones was the only way that it would work. Um, but, but yeah, I agree. It, it's really dependent on your, the quality of those models. I don't know, Herman, how about you? Yeah. I mean, for me, it's kind of like, what's the effigy bringing early? Cause like, if you look at the uh, mysterious one, it has that lure. So you can walk up, you can lure a model up, you get a little bit extra positioning for cheap. Then you also have that accomplice, and I really look for that accomplice there. So I'm kind of getting that one-two punch. You know, if I'm using it like Nekama, then she's moving up. All of a sudden, that threat range is way bigger than you expect it. And then he can grow up into something that's a lot tankier later on in the game and stick around. But if I look at like the brutal effigy, that's where I'm like, I don't, I don't really know what the brutal effigy is doing for me. Whereas the brutal emissary, he's more of a beater and he has crowd control and a few other things. Yeah, and for for resurrectionists. The emissary and effigy just do very different things, and there's not a good transition point between the two. Like, if you want the healing from the brutal or from the uh, carrion effigy, you probably are going to want that healing throughout the entirety of the game. If you're looking for the terrain and the mindless zombies and the uh, range damage, 
then you're probably going to want those throughout the entirety of the game. So transitioning between the two, I I never really found that to be the way I want to do it. It's never I want two turns of the effigy followed by three turns of the emissary. It's just not how it ends up shaking out for me. Fair enough. Uh, Jeff? Uh, I don't, uh, just to piggyback with Josh, I don't think I have ever seen the Carrion effigy in a game in third edition. Uh, you see the emissary a lot. I'm not sure I've ever seen the effigy uh, like in any tournament setting or anything like that. So uh, it's kind of a, uh, usually if you want the healing, you're going to take, you know, a regeneration or it's not like resurrection is to lack for healing. So that's um, an interesting point Josh made. All right. Well, there we have it. So we're going to go to a quick break. And when we get back, we are going to talk about some ideas for how upgrades could be different in the future. So stick with us and we'll be right back. All right, welcome back. So in this next segment, we're going to talk a little bit about future ideas for the upgrades. Now, we obviously, we don't have any crystal ball and we aren't in charge of designing the game, but we we do love to speculate on if we were king for a day, what are some things we could do um, to change up how upgrades play out? Um, so I want to start with really the heart of the original hot take that kicked off this episode, which was, you know, what if there were no upgrades? Um, I think realistically, there's no way that Weird would ever just remove upgrades, like not gonna happen. But tournament organizers could run a tournament format where they say, in this tournament, there, there are no generic faction upgrades. Um, if well, I guess the question to you all is, one, would that be a format that you would like to try? And two, if we did that, how do you think it would mix up the faction balance? Jamie, as our take originator, what do you think? Um, so I don't, I don't think it would be better for a lot of crews, a lot of factions, and I generally don't think it would be better for the game to have no upgrades. But would it be more balanced? Possibly. Certainly at the top end, yes. I think the bottom end would struggle more um, with, and, and I use that, those terms quite loosely because I don't think there's a huge gap, but um, I think the the factions with, um, like, the the factions with the worst upgrades won't feel, feel as bad playing in a format like that. But actually there are some crews that heavily rely on, on an upgrade to do something or fill a gap or something like that, that, that would feel quite bad about it. But um, I've, I've sort of rambled a little bit there. But yeah, I think ultimately the game, yes, the game would potentially probably be more balanced overall because I think the gap between the, the, the power level of the upgrades is too big. Um, but I don't think it would be good for the game for them for, to disappear, but like for the flavor and for the opportunity to tech pick for those upgrades that are better balanced. The, the top end stuff would definitely suffer um, because you're removing things that have sort of become the meta choices. Like you're always going to pick up a minion with magical training and arcanists because arcane reservoir is just stonking great. Uh, but most factions are 
would not suffer greatly in this. Uh, you would be limited on your tech picks. I think mas- there are specific masters that would definitely suffer as a result. Anyone playing in, like, Rezzer is playing into Pandora. Rezzer is playing into Jackdaw would suffer because they can no longer uh, reliably get ruthless. Um, but those are kind of master-specific. If you take the high willpower Resurrectionist crews, you go your elite von Stuck crew, and you're not going to have as much of a trouble as your your bells would or, or as your flesh constructs would. Uh, that's a bad example. They have ruthless. So um, my personal opinion is the crews, I don't know if they were designed this way, but they shouldn't have been designed with the idea of upgrades being factored into their crew. And I'm sorry, but like if you lose your arcane reservoir, maybe you have to go out and uh, figure out how to get card draw from something else. Uh, Maybe you have to bring in other models that aren't picked as often. Uh, I don't know that there are any ruthless models. Uh, I think there are within... uh, the uh but within resurrectionists but you know maybe you have to go outside keyword just like everybody else has to to figure out ways to get around and uh, you know do your tech pick so i don't think it's a bad tournament format and it would definitely uh be interesting uh but there would definitely be something you'd need to let the community know about ahead of time so that they could plan for it i tell you one thing that would happen from that and, and anyone that was part of the uh, open beta for M3E will remember this uh, if they followed this forum closely is I, we'd have to be very prepared for the endless tears of the Arcanist players. Um, there was a brief period during the uh, open beta where they didn't have Arcane Reservoir and you've never seen so much salt in your life. The poor Arcanist players, they can't cope without seven cards. They legitimately just fall apart and don't know what to do with themselves. <laughs> that is that is true josh i mean inside the delicious delicious uh arcanist tears there is a a nugget of fundamental truth in that these are the things that these crews were designed to have in mind like some of these crews don't have necessarily a uh tech pick model because they didn't need that or like things like Leadline Coat, Leadline Coat, you had to take it into consideration when you were balancing these models in a general sense. Uh, so they've all had that, at least in the back of their mind when they were designing these things. So taking them away would change a lot. Um, but again, I think it would come down to a, a master-specific thing. But I will reiterate Jamie's point that uh, Arcanists would be just the saltiest about all of this. So... Yeah, I mean, as far as the format goes, I'd play it. That's fine. I don't have strong opinions. But I did want to play a slight devil's advocate question then, is that if you are talking about how Bloodline Coat has been a design factor with Guild's faction design, or um, was a Butterfly Jump and Neverborn's faction design, what happens when you change that? You know, you say, okay, this is a problem. This has been taken too much. It's so bad for the game. We need to do it. What is the impact then of changing something that everything else in that faction has been designed around? Well, you'd have to do it in a fashion similar to what was done with Inhuman Reflexes, where they took away Butterfly Jump, but they put in something that occupied the same space. Scamper is different than Butterfly Jump, but still does something similar. Uh, And in some cases, 
can have some more utility depending on exact positioning, but it's not the same ubiquitous, always-on defensive feature. You get a toned-down version of your lead line sock, uh, and you would get the same, you get defensive measures, but not the always-on armor one laugh-off level of shenanigans that they currently have. I think the large portion of basically what Weird needs to look at with these upgrades is when I play Explorer Society, I don't look at an upgrade and say, that is needed. I I can't function without this. When I look at uh, Neverborn after uh, Inhuman Reflexes was changed, nothing in there is something that I immediately go, okay, I'm making my crew. First I make my master, now I'm going to attach uh, upgrades and make sure that I reserve four soul stones for upgrades. Uh, that's just not something that should be. When I play Resurrectionists, I know I'm immediately going to attach the Whisper on several uh, Masters. When I play uh, Ar- uh, Arcanists, I know that Arcane Reservoir upgrade is going to be attached somewhere in my crew. When you play Guild, you know that you're going to be taking uh, the Leadline Sock on at least one of your models, maybe two, for added protect- uh, protection. So I don't I think the upgrades that are, you know, I plan my crew around this upgrade as opposed to I'm doing it as a tech pick definitely need some attention. Uh, and, you know, there's an errata coming. Hopefully some of them get a slight look. So before the before we started recording, Jamie was actually talking about, I think, potentially a really cool idea to address some of these because we've all name dropped specific individual upgrades so i don't know jamie do you want to tell the listeners what your thought was on ways to address that yeah so there's there's two potential ideas so like there's one that is just better from a strictly balanced point of view which i I don't know whether it's but it would it's certainly not better from a fluff point of view but and better from a balance point of view would be potentially global upgrades, so rulebook upgrades rather than faction-specific upgrades, um, and they they could probably just generally be a tech pick. Um, you could have like one soulstone get unimpeded, cool. So you come on that board with loads of severe terrain, but you really want to use this keyword because it's good for the game. You could get the unimpeded upgrade on a couple of key models. Um, the other idea, which I think would just generally be better, uh, would be rotating upgrades in and out. Um, maybe one at a time, maybe maybe the whole set once every however long. Um, but I think it would give the opportunity for them to stay fresh. It would give the opportunity for them to mix up the abilities that go into the factions. And I think it's really, really challenging. If you think about having three different abilities um, or actions across three different upgrades across all the factions um, that have enough variation to give flavor to them, I think it's really hard to have that many different things at a similar balance level. So uh, I actually really like this idea that uh, Jamie's proposed, uh, and they don't have to be mutually exclusive. Uh, a, an upgrade that just came to, m- to mind is something like, if your model does not have armor, incorporeal, or hard to wound, it gains armor one, something so that you can't stack on, uh, but it can give a little bit of utility. Uh, to a model that maybe needs it. Uh, but, you know, these generic upgrades can be introduced with a gaining grounds where, like, these are the generic upgrades that come in with gen- uh, gaining grounds, uh, but we'd still need to address the existing upgrades that are out there currently. 
Josh? Ugh, I'm going to do that thing that I was, I said for people not to do earlier on and be like, generic upgrades, uh, even if they were easier to balance, they're just not very Malifaux. Uh, I mean, even if we look at uh, the other side, which does have a generic set of upgrades, their upgrades are still more bespoke than just adding this one ability. They are all still doing something weird and unique. Um, and as soon as you go down to the, the weird and unique path, uh, which is just exceedingly Malifaux, um, you're going to run into problems when you start applying it to literally hundreds of models. It's that same issue that you run into with something like Leadline Coat. You now have to consider Leadline Coat or fuck it, any of these upgrades on every model within a faction. Is there one that that's going to be problematic on? Possibly. Is that going to get caught in playtesting? Almost certainly not. It's not going to get caught until it's out in the wild. This, this fact has been demonstrated in multiple games that I've seen over the years. It's because... Within a beta playtest, there's just a much smaller meta than it is when you consider the whole world. So even if you think it's going to be more balanced, there's still a high likelihood you're going to miss something. And now you're missing something across all models and all factions, as opposed to at least focusing it in on one single faction. So what about... That actually just sparked an idea of what if there was, as part of a gaining grounds some strategy specific upgrades or, or a strategy that interacted with upgrades that you gave to models. What do you all think about how interesting that would be, Herman? I actually think that plays to one of the core strengths of Malifaux and of why we play it is that you have these gaining grounds, you have not just schemes and strategies and situations and scenarios that we're trying to score, but Literally, you have models with rules that, you know, drop scheme markers, interact with scheme markers. And so I think that having a upgrade that kind of interacts in a strategy sense, you know, maybe not direct scoring, but something that kind of works in that way, plays to the strengths of the game. Yeah, and there was a uh, there was a strategy in M2E that uh, if you're you had to have a model with or two models with upgrades... Oh no, sorry. Uh, let me let me clarify because you may be thinking of um, Show of Force, where you needed models with upgrades in the middle. Um, I meant like where the strategy said, and we, we kind of do this right now. Like the lodestone basically says, attach an upgrade. This model can't be placed. It gains an ability. Nearby models can move the lodestone. Like, what if the strategy actually gave? some upgrades that you placed on one or more models that said, when this strategy is in play, this upgrade happens and it can modify models abilities. Jamie. Okay. So, so I've gone down a slightly different path, but what you were, what you were talking about there. Um, no. Okay. I've instantly, while I'm thinking this very thought, <laughs> I've already decided it's a bad idea. Because- <laughs> I don't disagree, but that's hilarious. Yeah, because what it, what it is is a like a complete win more. But um, actually, you could go the other way, which would make more sense. But um, what I was because where you're saying, oh, you the strategy gives you an upgrade. Um, what like I was thinking, oh, but how cool would it be if you unlocked upgrades by by scoring points? Um, 
And like that would be a really interesting way to do it. And then I was just like, no, because actually, if you're winning, you're just getting better and better and better. So what about if you were losing and you unlocked upgrades by losing, like or by as if you dropped down points, you could unlock upgrades like that. And it just went. I went down a rabbit hole. And what I did was started talking before I'd finished thinking about it. And like I sort of got to the point. I started talking. It's like, oh, this is a terrible idea. And then I was like, well, actually, we could do it like this. But yeah. So um, I'm not sure. I don't. I don't actually think that the, the strat giving you an upgrade really changes anything like you've it's invented the lodestone load yeah it's basically the lodestone now but as an upgrade instead of a make-believe lodestone um like i'm not sure how that actually interacts with upgrades but um you could do something like about unlocking upgrades i guess with um with that or you could do i don't know i really i really don't, there's so many different ways you could do it I got you uh, there, Jamie. Uh, how about you start a something, maybe two of them, so that you're not all fighting in the middle of the board, but there are two cursed objects on the board, and when you pick up the cursed object, you get an upgrade that reduces your movement by two, and you lose all defensive mechanisms, uh, so, and you score points by having it on your side of the board, or even in your deployment zone, but it's really hard to get your guy there, and uh, like you become a whole lot easier to kill because you're carrying a cursed object. Wasn't that just cursed objects back in the day? Shut your face. No, it was a uh, it was a condition that was placed on your model. I think um, that had no effect yeah, back other when than conditions scoring. were ubiquitous. And I thought yeah. that, I thought there was one that made you worse off, at least slower. Maybe I'm crazy. It's possible I'm crazy. Supply wagons. Jamie. Um, so I think we used to have this um, in the game. I can't really remember an M three. What about if you could? Um, like it could even be a generic, a, a general action, but it would have to be really, really. It wouldn't. It would need to be not too easy to do. What about if you could knock upgrades off enemy models? Would that make it more balanced? So if you take a really good, like game impacting one, you're taking that in the knowledge that it's 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 going to be a target for your opponent. But actually, if you're taking one that's just a, a little bit of a tech pick or, or a little bit useful, not too broken, people might not bother wasting AP trying to get rid of it. Ah, uh, Hans. Uh, yeah. M2E uh, Hans. had that, and people like wept at just the concept, the idea that he could, what is it, plink or ping off an upgrade or something like that? Was it, was uh, it the idea that Hans Win, I think it was win. it was just like people in general. Even though I've never I never actually saw it go off, or maybe once in the entire time that I played M two E, it was one of those the the weeping and the gnashing of teeth over the existence of this ability. I think would dissuade Weird from ever putting that back in the game. I mean, it's a fun factor. You're someone pays something for an ability, and you're knocking it off of them. You know what people don't like. Uh, Hostile work environment. Maybe we don't put it on a model that can give himself 24-inch range. Well, just a thought. Just remember, though. So so I've used that ability in 2nd Edition uh, on Hans, and it was often devastatingly effective, but the, the key was the target for it was frequently the like model-specific upgrades. Because like, it, it wasn't just knock a generic model off or upgrade off. It was like knock any upgrade off, which... One, like it, like the, just the upgrade environment is different, but I think that it would be really problematic because you could like shoot Jan Lowe's Ascension upgrade off, which would be super weird. Um, Jamie, yeah, the 
the effect of it is just so uneven because they do use upgrades for a variety of things. In addition to the ones you purchase, you also have the summon upgrades. You also have the master specific upgrades for that certain subset of masters that does that sort of thing. Uh, but you could you could make it generic upgrades only. That's um, true. Uh, uh, look, like if we look at it in a more objective way. So aside from, and I'm going to use this example again because they deserve it. Aside from Arcanist players getting salty about losing Arcane Reservoir by it being knocked off by a model, um, if we look at it in a more objective way, you're saying, oh, people get really annoyed about hiring this for a specific purpose and then it being being removed. Well, is that not? How is that different to you hiring a model for? a purpose in the game and your opponent killing it like is it is it really that big of a stretch from there i i actually love the way uh, the the hole that jamie just went down if you get a two soul stone upgrade knocked off of a model in m3e and it devastates your game plan that is a problem upgrade in this game if you spent two soul stones that completely altered how you play that's not good just like, uh, it, you know, a two soul stones is a Malifaux rat. If I kill a Malifaux rat in, in, in a crew, it should not alter the way that you play in a, any significant way. And I'm sorry, that, but that just, the, what he just described, if, if you get Arcane Reservoir knocked off of uh, one of your models and it completely devastates you, that's not good. It's, it's the red magic versus blue magic distinction. People tend to be a lot less salty when you, they just outright kill a model than when they prevent you from doing that thing that you wanted to do. Yeah, that's a, that's a uh, good you, point. You see it all, like, I see it from you guys when, I'm, when I have a hostile work environment up. Like, depriving someone of the ability to do that thing that they paid for just makes people very angry. Just incensed when they can't do it. I, I'm not saying it's justifiable. And I'm not saying that that is a, a good or bad thing. But it's a thing that is true. So well, there's you're a depriving them of every. Yeah, ability. there's a difference between I'm taking away something that you can do, and I'm taking away everything that you can do. I like, will note the salt right now. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm not a big fan of hostile work environment. Uh, as the listeners know, I'm a big fan of like obey type crews, and I'm also a fan of summoning. And hostile work environment is like a big, big middle finger for to both of those. I'm sorry. But if we want to transition into the spiciest upgrade in this day and age, Will of Cadmus. There is a lot of, of consternation over uh, Cadmus and uh, Nexus lately. And I think Jeff has, has been playing quite a bit of Nexus. And we, at, in turn, have played against him a bunch. Um, I wanted to see what people thought about uh, what it feels like to play against Cadmus, and whether or not you think there are like fundamental underlying issues, or if it's it's something that just would take some more experience and and more figuring out of how to deal with the the mastering crew. Jeff, the 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 Cadmus aficionado, uh, what do you think about that? So, uh, if go back and have a listen to our Cadmus podcast. Uh, we cover him uh, pretty uh, in depth. But in the podcast, uh, I had I had said right off the bat, this is not a crew that when you first play with it or play against it, you are going to understand and do well against. Uh, this crew 
is hard to handle and maneuver. It is also hard to play against uh, with somebody that has a good understanding of the Cadmus crew. Um, and I think Herman made a comment before, and I actually like the comment. Every game of Malifaux, doesn't matter how many games that you've played, every game of Malifaux is a brand new game. Um, so when you go into this game, uh, particularly if it's a master that you've never played against, you need to really understand what you're playing against. Cadmus does have some glaring weaknesses that it has. Now, there are other models that are being taken, such as the uh, Emissary, that help to uh, cover up some of those weaknesses, but there, those weaknesses are there. And uh, as Josh, Herman, Owen, and probably Jamie are going to attest over the next you know, uh, couple of minutes, uh, it, it, Cadmus is beatable. You just have to play around uh, their mechanic. Yeah, I 100% agree on that. Um, and speaking as someone who got utterly stomped by Cadmus the first time I played it, the you just... And it's easy for me to say, oh, just learn to play, right? That, that's not that's not what I'm trying to say. But like, it is definitely one where you're gonna lose probably the first two or three times you play against it. And so the key is just practice, right? Like it it is beatable. Um, you just need to to apply the right techniques to try to avoid it. Um, but uh, but I don't know, Jamie. Have you have you been playing Nexus in the UK league? Uh, I actually played Nexus today in the UK league. Yeah, um, I really like Nexus. I really enjoy playing with Nexus, and I really enjoy playing against Nexus. Um, and I completely agree with what's been said already. Like, there's this online vendetta against uh, Nexus at the moment from from some salty people. But you know what? It's a really cool crew. It's a really cool theme. It does have some glaring weaknesses. And you know what? Yes, you can take some models to try and overcome them. But is that any different to what we do in any other crew in the game? Uh, I, don't, I don't see that it is. Um, but yeah, I mean, so to, to go back to what we said right at the beginning when you were asking what a Panto villain is, uh, I mean, what you were just about to say, where you say, just play better, that is exactly the Panto villain stuff to say. So if I was <laughs> it, as, as the Panto villain, it would be just play better chumps. Unfortunately, that is not the most useful advice. Um, <laughs> and I, I, I'm not going to stop it off at just play better. Honestly, against Nexus, the, the answer is to play against Nexus more. Like, or even play with Nexus more to give you a better insight into how the crew functions and how to deal with it. Um, I've seen it from both sides, and like fielding Nexus, trying it out, gives you a lot of uh, insight into how both the crew works and how you can take it apart. So that would be a definite recommendation I would have to anyone who is having issues with Nexus would be to to play it, to actually put, put the crew on the table uh, and see how it goes. Yeah, and I mean, I'll say that playing against it, and I mean, maybe Jeff is just catfishing me by playing poorly, but playing against Screw it has you. been really eye-opening because I had games where I was absolutely dominating him, like the, uh, the little puppy dog that he is. But then I had another game where I made a single mistake before the game had even kicked off. I was playing a Bass against Nexus, and you know Bass has the ability to deploy further up the table. 
So I was trying to keep it so that way I was outside of the melee range of where he could place the husks. And I just screwed up where Bass placed, and he was able to drop a husk like straight up in melee with Bass. He got that parasite token. I had a bad hand. He had a good hand. He got the token on him turn one, and things went very poorly for Bass. So it was a case of like you feel bad, and it feels really strong because a tiny mistake before anything got kicked off, before cards happened, cost had a big impact. It had a large cost. Flip side is that the next time I'm gonna hopefully be smarter and try. And then, like, even on, like, the Guild Facebook page, we were kind of spitballing a bunch of different ideas, a, bit, a bunch of different tech takes that you can take. If you're worried about Will of Cadmus, you can take the Emissary with crowd control, and he can stop those actions. Uh, you can start to prey a lot on their low willpower through models like Alan Reed, uh, where he puts up that target number duel that they got to take. So every time they got to take an action, you're trying to take this TN duel, and if your willpower is three, then you need a seven every single time before you even get to start flipping cards. So there's a lot of little itty bitty things that you can start working on as you start getting kind of that experience, but it takes time. It takes games. And like, you know, if you're like me, I play like one game a week. That takes me several months to even play multiple games against Cadmus. So, uh, first of all, there, here's a pro tip to everybody out there. Do not get a parasite token on your master turn one. You're probably going to lose that game. Uh, it's not a good idea. But to put the, that ability into perspective with the Parasite Tokens, when you get a Parasite Token, you have effectively been given uh, these... Now, keep in mind, aside from a couple of models with Arcane Reservoir, the Cadmus crew does not have very many defensive abilities. They rely on the Parasite Token to grant them that. And the Parasite Token is the equivalent of having incorporeal, and a melee version of Vengeance. It is no different than Karai with extra hoops that you have to jump through. So the complaining about that is, it's a little much, um, but I have found in my uh, many games that I've played with Cadmus, ranged crews give uh, Cadmus a huge problem, and terrifying is literally terrifying to the Cadmus player. Uh, those uh, shambling nests that people are so afraid of can do almost nothing to things that are terrifying because not only are you trying to pass terrifying checks with an incredibly low willpower, now you're hitting at a stat of four after you do it. It's a huge card sink and not worth the time. So there's a lot of counterplay when you're playing against Nexus. Just keep going, try out different things, figure out what works. Uh, Also, Anna Lovelace is a pain in the butt. Yeah, I, like jokes aside about just playing better, like you guys have come up with some like really, really um, good counters there. And like, it is like the, I think it's one of those keywords where like I, can, I get the, the feel bad. So I can sort of understand the salt to a degree. Like I can get how if you get caught in it, it's going to feel bad. But like, I think something like Jack Daw is going to do exactly the same thing, right? If you get caught in that web that he's trying to put out and, and in that situation that he wants you to be in it's going to be a feel bad situation um but i think cadmus is really really obvious just looking at the cards what what the weaknesses are they've got the low stats on the move on the willpower on on some of their models they like to be close together um there's some really really obvious counters that a lot of factions have access to um to bring to the table to deal with them and then aside from that it's it's a big part of it is going to be learning what they will do to you um, like you need to know what they can do to know how to beat it. First of all, Jeff, I can't, I can't believe you brought my girl into this. Don't leave Karai out of this mess. She's 
precious and vulnerable. Um, but second, yeah, uh, knowing, I think on the explorers, knowing what your opponent can do with them is extremely important. Uh, the explorer masters are pretty much across the board uh, complicated. They do a lot of stuff. And if you aren't expecting that, then you're going to get caught by surprise. Uh, and that's very true for that entire keyword or that entire faction. So definitely do some research. I, I know everyone loves homework, uh, but you want to be want to be an explorer society? Do your homework. So uh, along that same, I was playing a game against Herman. Uh, I don't remember what clue, crew he was ta- taking, but uh, he shot my uh, shambling nest and gave it staggered. And I'm sorry, but when you're walking around with a move of one, he's not really all that scary. Like, uh, they're, take advantage of their weaknesses. Like, if you take anything that targets willpower or target, targets movement, like, it, it's almost auto hits against them. The other thing that I'd like to point out is if you avoid the parasite tokens, which is doable, their damage tracks are all really, really low. Like, if you just look at Cadmus himself, if you get into melee, or sorry, Nexus, when you get into melee with Nexus, uh, he can potentially, she, it, uh, do a minimum of four, potentially five damage in melee. If you don't have a Parasite token, they he, it can do one, three, what, one, three, four damage uh, a turn uh, to you once, because uh, is, is, uh, you can't go through the same model more than once. Like If you're running into a big melee in the middle and deciding that you're going to win that fight, I'm sorry, you're not going to win that fight. Uh, it's two, not... four, five, man, because of uh, Siphon Power and Drain Life Trigger. Well, that's if Cadmus is hurting themselves for, the, for it. But once again, from a master, two, four, five, that's what one gunshot from most other masters. It's not that scary. It's not really something that you need to hugely worry about. It's when you're clumped up and they're passing off damage to everybody is when things start to get really concerning for you. I mean, don't clump up. Spread out. Like, I mean, these are these are fairly simple things. If you had a model in the middle of the board that had a hazardous aura uh, that did one damage to you every time you took an action, are you really going to run everybody into that middle of that the board? It just uh, yes. some people are playing. Yeah, some people are playing against Cadmus and making silly decisions and then blaming it on Cadmus. And I just I'd like to see some of like get a little more games in and, and figure it out. I was just going to add that it was the clockwork traps. So you deployed your um, nests, and then I just deployed the traps engaging them. Yeah, it worked out with the that's that's right. That's what it was. And the it, I mean, honestly, traps uh, for a what is it? Two soul stone model. It targets movement, and you're stuck in melee with them. And honestly, the over like they were just kind of stuck where they were. But and uh, if Herman uh, wouldn't have uh, made the mistake of getting a parasite token on Bass turn one, that probably would have been a game that I lost because like after the shambling nests are removed the reliably getting uh, parasite tokens gets a lot harder. All right. Well, there, I think we're going to wrap it there. And uh, I know it's fairly late over in the UK, so we'll let Jamie uh, get on with his night slash bed. Um, but uh, I just want to thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been awesome. Love to have you back sometime. Um, so, yeah, no uh, worries, man. Thanks for having me. 
And uh, we and, also- uh, uh, you want to plug Jamie's podcast. If you have a chance, go over and check out the Flipping Weirds podcast. A uh, bunch of great guys. Uh, I've left, listened to it a couple of times. Uh, so go give, go give them a listen. If you're in search of more Explorer Society content, I believe all the most recent episodes uh, of their podcast go deep. Um, and I'll also put in a plug for checking out the UK Super League. So there's weekly posts going up on the Weird Place uh, Facebook group, uh, and then I believe also some content on the the Weird forums. This is, I mean, the UK has really been been doing an amazing job in pandemic times with vassal leagues, with keeping organized play going. Um, so if you are in the US and aren't following any of the UK stuff going on, you should definitely check it out. There's a lot of interesting information coming out of the, the balance there. Um, so definitely follow along and see how things are going. Uh, and with that, thank you for listening to another exciting episode of the Capital City Crew podcast. We will be back in your feed with awesome stuff soon. Take care. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Capital City Crew podcast. We hope you tune in next time.